Hello everyone. Welcome to today's episode on Raza with Grace of Her. The episode for today centers around forced adoption. The British government should formally apologize to unmarried mothers who were forced to give up their babies for adoption, according to an official report that gave harrowing details of the anguish suffered by these women. The report states that these women and girls suffered stigma and shame at having become pregnant out of wedlock, and later because they were wrongly perceived as having given up their children voluntarily. Ministers should officially apologize to tens of thousands of women in England and Wales who had their babies taken for adoption through a brutal and cruel process, MPs and peers have said. The Joint Committee on Human Rights have called on the government to issue a formal apology to unmarried mothers who had their babies taken for adoption over several decades between the late 1940s and the mid-1970s. In a report published in July 2022, the Joint Committee finds that the government bears ultimate responsibility for the pain and suffering caused by public institutions and state employees that pressurized mothers into unwanted adoptions. It further calls for more to be done to support those dealing with the lifelong consequences of these adoptions, urging the government to improve access to counselling and remove barriers to accessing adoption documents. Tens of thousands of unmarried mothers had their babies taken away between 1949 and 1976. In England and Wales, an estimated 185,000 children were forcibly taken from unmarried mothers and given up for adoption, despite not wanting to let them go. In the immediate post-war era and for the next 25 years, women and girls who became pregnant outside of marriage during these decades were seen as having shamed themselves and their families. The legacy was a lifetime of suffering for mothers and adoptees, including impacts on mental health and challenges informing future relationships. Hundreds of birth mothers and adoptees have long campaigned for a government apology into their suffering. The report said adoption practices at the time lacked humanity, with many mothers feeling they had no real choice in the placements for adoption of their children. The committee heard evidence that they were often treated appallingly by people whose job it was to help them, such as social workers and NHS medical staff, as well as by their own family members. Many women and girls were moved into mother and baby's homes run by the state or religious and charitable bodies for the final weeks of their pregnancy. There, some were punished for having a child out of wedlock, being forced to scrub stairs and floors. One recalled that those who objected were slapped. Adoptees told the committee of being admonished for asking about their past and that when they did get an answer, they were sometimes told falsely that their mothers had given them away. A large number of women say they were denied pain relief during birth and were abused by social workers, nurses and other staff. The committee's report says the women were subjected to cruelty, abuse and pressure, 
all for the purpose of getting them to hand over their babies for adoption. Many women were initially sent away because their parents were so embarrassed by their pregnancy. The women were considered to have transgressed and had to be punished, the report said. Most of the mothers are now in their 70s or 80s, with the adopted people in their 40s and 50s. These witnesses spoke of the shame and secrecy that surrounded their pregnancy. During early medical appointments, the report says, the women were treated in a dismissive and cruel way. One woman told the inquiry, my male GP told me I was a social menace. Adoption agencies, too, became involved at an early stage. One witness told the inquiry she was belittled and bullied into thinking I had only one option, namely to have her baby adopted. In oral evidence to the Joint Committee on Human Rights, JCHR, Judy Baker, who gave birth two days before her 19th birthday and had a baby taken away for adoption seven weeks later, said, It is 53 years later and I am still a wreck because of what happened to me and my daughter. We have been quiet for so long because of this awful cloak of shame that has been put on us that we never ever deserved. I never got to say goodbye. They took her into the next room where her new parents were waiting for her. And that was it. Miss Baker said an apology was never ever too late. Sorry is so important and all of us out there are still living with the trauma and the pain that this has cost us. Have spent 50 plus years of my life Macked, scarred by the trauma. Some of the worst experiences came in hospital when they went to give birth. Pat Tuckwell was a schoolgirl when she became pregnant in 1964. She recalls going into labor but being roughly handled by a nurse during an intimate examination. It was painful, she said. She looked at me and she said, Oh, I don't know how you can get pregnant if you can't let me do this to you. It was just an awful thing to say. She would never have said it to anybody else who was married. So why did she say that to me just because I was unmarried? She obviously thought I was one of the lowest of the low. Another woman was told by a nurse that she deserved all the pain I got during her delivery. A doctor said to another mother that I should be sterilized as I must be a nymphomaniac. Many women told the committee they were not even allowed to hold their newborn baby. One wrote that they pulled her out of my arms. The pain was unbearable. Another woman said, I screamed and hung onto him like a woman possessed. Veronica, who was 24 when she was forced to give up her child, told BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour that such an apology would mean recognition that what had happened was so wrong, so wrong. I felt very alone, she said. Veronica was able to trace her daughter through an intermediary contact 25 years after the first adoption, but her daughter really wasn't ready at the time. Later on, 
Veronica met in 2004 with her daughter, who had a child of her own by then. It was a lovely day, Veronica added. Miss Heavy was born in 1974 after her mother was pressured to put her up for adoption. She says she has always had problems with her identity, but an apology would help. Some people say an apology, you know, sorry, is just a small word. But I think really what lies behind the apology is the validation of all the pain and suffering that we have actually silently experienced. There's lots of shame, lots of guilt. There's lots of secrecy and being part of a secret society like this involved in forced adoption has been extremely difficult for everyone involved. Elaine Griffiths said, sending me away from my family to adult lodgings to have a baby on my own at 15 years has scarred me for life, physically and psychologically. Being away from home in a strange town, I was not integrated into antenatal care and had absolutely no idea what to expect. I had a traumatic manual induction of labor at the hands of a local GP. I went into labor and hospital by ambulance alone. The birth process was a terrible shock as I had no preparation. I cared for my son for eight days in the maternity hospital before returning to my lodgings alone. Back in my hometown, I was not integrated into postnatal care. I believe this lack of physical health care led to my being unable to have any further children, an indescribable grief. Another woman recounted her ordeal to the committee. I was unaccompanied during the birth, except for the midwives, and the birth took place in a local hospital in 1975. The birth was long and grim, ending with an epidural, forceps and many stitches, probably because I had had virtually no antenatal care or preparation and was absolutely terrified. My daughter was taken straight into the nursery and I was left on a trolley outside the delivery room until some time later. I was wheeled onto a ward. I cannot remember much of the next 10 days. 10 days was the usual post-birth Hospital stay then. But I do know that I was desperate to see my daughter all the time. I remember going secretly into the nursery in the dead of night and attempting to breastfeed her. I had no idea at all of how to do this, but some primal need and drive led me. After 10 days, I left the hospital with my mother leaving my daughter behind. And from that moment on, my family didn't refer to either my daughter or my experience for 40 years. I was expected to get on with life. Another anonymous mother recounted, As an unmarried mother, I was allocated the social worker who, although was very kind and understanding, persuaded me that there really was no alternative but to have my baby adopted. I had no support from the father of the baby. I could not and would not rely on support from my parents. And at that time, there was no government support in any way. I just could not have kept my baby, carried on working and supporting myself without help. So the most painful decision of my life had to be made and everyone encouraged me to have my baby adopted. Florence Keaton told the inquiry, my parents didn't really know what to do, so I left it all in the hands of a family doctor. 
he immediately put us in touch with the church army moral welfare officer and the whole situation was completely governed by my GP and the church welfare officer. Adoption was the only prospect ever considered by them and my parents. I didn't even have a say in the matter, but I knew even before he was born that I loved my baby. It felt like it was him and me against the world. But my rights as a mother and his rights as my child were taken away from us. Another anonymous mother described the appalling lack of sensitivity surrounding adoption at the time. Under the adoption legislation, the adoption was deemed full and final, that there would be no contact. What if my daughter didn't know she had been adopted? There was, after all, no requirement for her to have been told, and I had no right to approach mediation services. I was severed from my birth family, and they were severed from me. I was prevented access to familiar faces and the people that I look like. I didn't have information pertinent to familiar medical history. I grew up without the facts surrounding my life. I was raised with the knowledge that I am adopted. Although my experience of dialogue around my adoption is shut down, it is not talked about. Adoption has deeply impacted on my sense of self, my self-esteem, my relationship to others, and my relationship to the world. Evidence to the committee was taken from around 300 people, mostly birth mothers and adopted children. The committee said the state should apologize because it is responsible for the conduct of employees of public bodies such as the NHS and the policies and laws of the time as well as the omissions of policy and law that allowed these practices. Harriet Hammond, MP, the JCHR's chair, said, the mother's only crime was to have become pregnant while unmarried. Their sentence was a lifetime of secrecy and pain. They were told they had given their baby for adoption when they had done no such thing. Their children grew up being told that their mother had given them away. The mothers had to endure a cruel double dose of shame. First, the shame of getting pregnant out of wedlock, and second, when society's attitude to unmarried mothers changed. They were judged for supposedly not caring about their babies and giving away their babies. These adoptions could never happen now and should not have happened then. They did nothing wrong but were themselves wronged. The Joint Committee on Human Rights acknowledges the grave wrong done to these mothers and their children. It is time for the government to do the same and issue the apology the seek. The committee concluded there are some things that only a government can do and it falls on the government to make this apology. In its response to the committee's conclusions, the government said, we have the deepest sympathy to all those affected by historic forced adoption. While we cannot undo the past, we have strengthened our legislation and practice to be built on empathy from NHS maternity services caring for vulnerable women and babies to our work transforming the adoption process and care system to help children settle into stable homes. The committee also urged the government to provide better counselling services for birth mothers and adopted people. It has called for improved access to birth and medical records, saying there are often huge disparities in the timeliness of the responses of local authorities.
historical context. During World War II, and despite having contributed to the war effort by keeping the railways running, working in armament factories, serving in the armed forces and delivering aeroplanes for the Air Transport Auxiliary. By the end of hostilities, it was time for women to be domesticated once again. This meant getting married and supporting a husband when he came home from work, contributing to the burgeoning baby boom. In that order, becoming pregnant outside of holy matrimony was definitely not part of the stable accepted covenant. This wasn't the first time women had been made substitutes for what had traditionally male professions. During World War I, it was not only armaments, the railway and other heavy industrial work which saw vast numbers of women entering the workplace while the men they replaced were called up to fight. But the empowerment and emancipation, not to say liberation, from domestic drudgery that followed eventually gained women the right to vote. Women had quite literally been wearing trousers totally ahead of before the war and to a certain extent allowed them to partake in the newfound freedoms of the jazz age of the 1920s. Of course, at the end of the war, those returning men who had survived the slaughter on the Western Front and elsewhere wanted their jobs back. And even though there were an estimated 2 million less of them in 1914, the industry involved in war production had worn down. It was those men who won out at the expense of the women who had replaced them. The post-war government ensured that was exactly what happened. By the 1930s and the onset of the Great Depression, these expressions pertaining to a limited degree of equality were starting to frail as mass male unemployment swept the country. Pregnancy out of wedlock while the country was at war, yet in peacetime it was a source of stigma and shame. In the same way homosexuality, even though it was still illegal, was hypocritically tolerated because it was no longer a pressing issue as the country required fit males of fighting age whatever their sexual persuasion. With so many expectant mothers losing their husbands or fiancés in action, it was common for the expectant mother to marry another man and he would adopt the child as his own. Either way, it was not an issue that troubled the authorities on duty, as they were far too preoccupied with fighting a war and dealing with a bankrupt nation hemorrhaging financial resources. When peace had returned and normal service resumed, a conventionality was quickly re-established and at its heart was the sacrosanct union of marriage. An unmarried high society woman who found herself pregnant would probably procure an abortion through a well-connected family member or friend, could probably afford to pay for it privately, but for a working class woman, this option was a practical and financial impossibility. An illegal backstreet termination for a cash fee was an option in any town or city in the country, although fraught with danger with a serious risk of death or serious injury for the woman. A decision meant that there was a distinct possibility that the mother would be forced to surrender the newborn child under pressure from the vaguely defined authorities to be passed along the chain and adopted by a married couple who were unable to conceive themselves. Why is it the government is so reluctant to apologize to women whose children were forcibly taken off them for adoption? 
Is it because the shame of issuing an apology is commensurate with the shame of facing up to the discredited policy of insisting that children must be born into an officially sanctioned relationship with both a mother and a father? As a standard government procedure, when historic wrongs have been committed against the marginalized, vulnerable and voiceless, social mores eventually change to reflect public sentiment, apologies, redress and compensation are all hard to come by. For all the hand-wringing and expression of sympathy, only begrudgingly emitted through greeted teeth and a long time after the events, the lifetime of grief that these mothers and their children have been subjected to, what they think about every day, maybe much of the day is brushed under the carpet and written off to a bad experience by callous authorities who bear the ultimate responsibility. It's to just move on with their lives. If you've been affected by this piece, kindly send an email or comment to risingaboveshadowsofabuse at gmail.com. Kindly subscribe, comment, share, and leave a review. See you on our next episode. This has been Grace Opa for Raza. Rising above shadows of abuse. Thank you. If you've got any questions or inquiries, you can get in touch rising above shadows of abuse at gmail.com or our social media platforms rising above shadows of abuse at TikTok rising above shadows of abuse, Twitter rising above abuse, YouTube. Rising Above Shadows of Abuse.